standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 276 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I've had a bath. No one likes to show off, Mick. <laughs> I thought you were going to say no one likes to shower, Jen. I was like, no, I'm not saying. I'm not like showers are bad, baths are good. But baths are great, right? Have you been in a hotel? No, in my own bath, which makes it better, Hannah. Because the your last bedroom? time I had, yeah, the one in our bedroom. Yeah, because the, the last time I had a bath, water then poured through the ceiling of the lounge, so our <laughs> bath has been out of order. I've got to say, this first bath back wasn't massively relaxing because of the water pouring through the lounge <laughs> of the ceiling the last time. But I've got that one out of the way. When you say you've got a bath in your bedroom, I feel like you need to specify it's actually, you know, like not like a tub or anything. You know, not like like in the old days when we then had a bath in the kitchen. <laughs> no, no, it's not like a copper tub. No. Yeah. Oh, my grandma had one of them as well. No, it's like your bedroom's basically like a sort of fancy hotel room, isn't it? It's got like a... Uh... Absolutely, complete with animal fur of all different shades <laughs> and sizes. Just like every fancy hotel anyone would want to stay in, Jen. Five stars. <laughs> complete with underneath waterfall. Yeah. <laughs> Wet room downstairs as well as upstairs. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and whatever that thing is that is going round, I've had it, and it's horrible. Aw. Like, you know, full disclosure, you still got a bit of it. Sympathies, buddy. Ooh. I had it before I went on holiday, and agree, it is horrible. Is it COVID? I don't know. I keep seeing loads of people saying, oh, loads of people on my work have got COVID. And I had COVID earlier this year, as you'll remember, for the first time. And it was almost impossible to find out if I had COVID or not. Nobody had any tests. I couldn't get a hold of any. So I'm slightly suspicious when people say everybody's got COVID, whether people say they've got COVID now in the same way that they used to say, I've got the flu. Mm. I mean, I, th- I think like the stats are, and I don't know if this is self-reported or whether they're more official stats but yeah that covid is on the rise again which makes sense because it's autumn and it's you know a part of our lives now but yeah you're right it's not as when no one's testing as much at all understatement of the year no one's testing as much at all for covid right yeah i'm jen offered and imagine my delight when Lyra ran to nursery this morning with her hands in her pockets (laughs) all coming together i wanted to get a little video for you both (laughs) <laughs> she had her hands in her pockets and she was running she was going oh like and I was just like brilliant and then I thought maybe that's it maybe Lufa's hands were just cold two things Jen one can I ask put your laptop somewhere safe no that's what I was gonna say <laughs> it goes out of a window no 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 and two that is how I broke my nose the first time when I was little, running with my hands oh, in my really? pockets. So please, uh, yeah, keep an eye on that. And indeed, the, the way I broke my nose the third time as a grown adult, so I didn't fucking learn. <laughs> Coming up, Hazel Davis chats to writer Flick Everett about cosy crime and her new series of novels. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to former Great British swimming champion and host of the Physical Capital podcast, Rebecca Acheng Ajulu Bushel, about representation, mental health and myth-busting. And, speaking of myth-busting, eh? In Rated or Dated, (laughs) we are feeling the rhythm and indeed the rhyme as we watch 1993's Cool Runnings. But first, voracious bloodsuckers all over the shop. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Stink. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Fuck's sake, Australia. For fuck's sake. I kind of feel like we live in a world where this sort of shit shouldn't surprise me. And yeah, I'm just like, really? Really? 
what the actual yeah probably wise if you google this yourself uh look up the australian referendum on aboriginal people and the constitution also i mean it's a negative point but maybe on a slightly more positive for you and i point uh i noticed that the labor party lost in the new zealand election becky and everyone is absolutely agog with this. Who could have seen this coming? And uh, you and I actually discussed this about six months ago on the podcast and called it. Oh, there we go. When Jacinda Ardern stood down, we said, yeah, it's because her party's not going to win at the next election. And it didn't. not sure it's great, but... Oh, no, it's not great. I mean, he's quite right wing. But I just can't believe that people don't see stuff like this coming. But anyway, Ugh. talking of her, so... I know listeners might be expecting us to be talking about the ongoing horror show in Israel and Gaza. But here's the thing. Mickey said what she thought last week. And I said what I thought in the mail out. This topic is so complex and fast changing and never changing. I'm not sure there's anything I can add. What I have been doing, though, is reading not self-appointed experts on Twitter, but people with first-hand and long-term understanding of the situation. I humbly suggest everybody does the same. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I've been doing the same. I've been doing reading. And all that I'll add is that this is a huge humanitarian crisis. And if you'd like to throw some money the right way, as in that takes care of all of the innocent people caught up in this, then Care International and the Red Cross are doing very good things. I'm reading uh, Jeremy Bowen's book, the making of the modern Middle East came out last year. Okay. So really up to date because obviously there's lots of stuff, but in a in a place in the world where things change really quickly, obviously, um, but it's got all the stuff about the Arab Spring and yeah, pretty clear and concise. Which it seems is very hard to be about this subject. Yeah. Anyway, rubs hands together. It's like because you're cold. <laughs> yeah. You know how I love the fall of a grifter. So let's take a slow walk through the story of Captain Tom Moore and his rapacious daughter, Hannah Ingram Moore. So it was announced today that a film about Captain Moore's life is being delayed after it's become increasingly clear that money raised in his name went directly into the pockets of his family. Who could have known? (laughs) I could, Mickey, and I did. I'm guessing we all know who Captain Tom was because the whole nation went patronisingly gaga about the 100-year-old man who did laps of his garden to raise an incredible amount of cash for the NHS during lockdown. So why have I picked this story this week? Is it simply so that I can say I was right about these chances? Too fucking right it is. In fact, back in 2020 and 2021, I repeatedly cautioned about giving money to charities, organisations and individuals who had no clear and public plan for where that money was going. And here we are with Ingram Moore telling Piers Morgan she was paid £18,000 for attending the Virgin Media O2 Captain Tom Foundation Connector Awards in 2021 by the chief executive of that body, who was checks notes herself fucking hell she kept £16,000 of that and donated £2,000 to the Captain Tom Foundation (laughs) that was good of her which is exactly the kind of shit I was cautioning about as was the fact that Ingram Moore and her husband used the Captain Tom Foundation name 
on the first plans for the office building in the grounds of their home, naming it the Captain Tom Foundation Building. The plans were later approved in connection with the Captain Tom Foundation and its charitable objectives. The family then submitted revised plans in February last year for a private pool, spa and toilet. (laughs) They await a decision from their local council as to whether that building should be pulled down. I think that decision is being made tomorrow, which will be yesterday, uh, if you're listening to this on Wednesday. Okay. Still, the family did receive all of the profit, £800,000 from Captain Tom's three books, which his daughter claims was his plan all along. Wowzers. Why does this matter? Because it's not just this one case. Social media has supercharged grifting, and in the current climate, the media and individuals are often reluctant to ask questions. And so my advice remains the same. Ask questions. Mm. Where is this money going and can they prove it? And maybe don't write TV dramas about people without looking at the full (laughs) story. And if anyone out there knows anyone who's studying the phenomena, please, please, please let me know. And equally, if you could explain to me how putting money into Jack Monroe's bank account directly helps people in poverty, I'd be fascinated to hear that too. So when this story broke, I emailed it to Hannah with, it's what she's been waiting for, and um, in brackets, you, not the other Hannah. Because, yeah, you called this ages ago, and uh, I, I hope that building gets pulled down. Is that mean of me? I hope that building gets pulled down. No, I, I, I hope it does. Okay, I'm going to be kind to some degree and say that perhaps, because like, like I say, this is being replicated all over the place, perhaps. Some people get overwhelmed when things take off that they weren't expecting to be as successful as they are or as popular as they are, and they don't have the means to file their accounts properly and all of that stuff. That's the kindest possible thing I can say here. And that in itself is a good reason not to give too much money to people who don't know what they're fucking doing. But we bear some responsibility to ask the questions, to do the fucking work, as they call it. Absolutely. I love that you're always kindest when you've had public vindication. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of bloodsuckers. Hey. Good night. Sleep tight. Don't let the bed bugs bite. It's a familiar little rhyme that's actually about as cutesy as Nick Ross at the end of Crime Watch. <laughs> what? I was all sleepy and now I'm really fecking itchy and worried about <laughs> criminals. For fuck's sake. It was a small silver lining of the COVID pandemic that the spread of bed bugs declined. Bye bye, bed bugs. It was almost worth never seeing anyone for four months, Mickey. It was almost worth it. Well, you know, with hotels shut and travel mostly banned, of of course it did. Of course they declined because bedbugs are hitchhikers and they travel to new places by hiding in furniture, suitcases or other objects that get moved around and then snack on our blood while we sleep. Are you itchy yet, Hannah? Mm. You should be because those bad boys are back with a vengeance, baby. Now, the end of that rhyme always <clears throat> bugged me. Don't oh. let them bite. I know, sorry. Am I sorry? I'm not even sorry. Don't let them bite. Any further instructions? <laughs> no. That's victim blaming, Mickey. That is victim <laughs> blaming at its very best. In it. Just, you know, just you ask You let them. those bed bugs bite you. So rude. So rude. No one gave me instructions. But now there is a solid answer, and that answer is dogs. I mean, it Isn't couldn't it be better. It couldn't be better. <laughs> 
hooray not my dog she would just help them out with any of the chomping <laughs> but hotels and homeowners are calling in specially trained dogs to sniff out bed bugs that can lurk in cracks and crevices in bedrooms Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> crevices is a horrible choice of word i am sorry for that is that why dogs sniff crutches <laughs> they're just checking out your cracks and your crevices hannah <laughs> and the more you giggle the more they'll do it We've probably had a 25% increase in call-outs since June. Gary Jaitman, Chief Executive of K9 Detection Services in Solihull and handler to Springer Spaniels Milo and Kobe, told The Guardian. These dogs are spot on. I can't not give him that voice. I'm sorry, Gary Jaitman, if you're listening, this is how I think you sound, even though you're from Birmingham. There's very little that can get past a well-trained nose. Now, they're relatively harmless physically. A bedbug infestation can be traumatic, no shit, mate, with big mental health implications because people tend to falsely associate the critters with poor living conditions or a lack of hygiene or a dirty house, when in reality, their growing presence is down to travel, a growing resistance to insecticides and people buying second-hand furniture. If you do discover you have a bedbug infestation, contact your local council who may be able to help and treat your home for free or consult a pest control company that is a member of the British Pest Control Association because they'll have the experience in removing stubborn bedbug infestations, which may include using like chemicals to kill them. Anyway, don't have nightmares. Do sleep well. No further <laughs> instructions. <laughs> I actually know someone who's had their house fumigated because of bedbugs in the last couple of weeks. And I do know that if you get someone in, as a rule, if they don't get it the first time, they will come back you know get someone with a guarantee yeah but they just moved into a new property and were like uh, 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 uh. somebody's got to do something about those bed bugs oh, yeah, because, yeah. Oh, i've made myself feel very itchy talking about smashing useful hard working i'd like to put your ears in my mouth why are you walking <laughs> away lonely dogs here's a nice story because they do still exist yeah right you're gonna have to convince me yeah <laughs> Battersea Dogs and Cats Home has announced plans to help thousands of animals in need with money raised from public donations following the death of Paul O'Grady. Clear plan of where they're going to spend the money. (laughs) The presenter and comedian was well known for his love of animals and his ITV programmes about them, which I frankly couldn't believe existed and yet they were totally delightful. Joyful. Anyway, he had been an ambassador for the charity for more than a decade when he died in March. Close to 20,000 donations, totaling £480,000, were made in Paul's honour from members of the public wanting to pay their respects. Battersea's clinic facilities are now to be renamed the Paul O'Grady Veterinary Hospital as a tribute. Now, I can't claim to have known him, but I get the distinct impression he'd have bloody loved that. Oh, agreed. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Oh, you know the putting dog's ears in your mouth thing? Yeah. So Gary came and met me after the gym on Saturday and he brought Missy, our three-month-old puppy, who has got the silkiest, biggest ears. They're crazy. We love them. I'm hoping she never grows into them. And one of my mates at the gym was like, oh my God, her ears are amazing. I'm like, put one in your mouth. And she looked at me absolutely horrified. And she said, I think that's only okay if it's your dog. And I went in a voice that I'd given to Missy, Put one of my ears in your mouth. And uh-huh. another woman who hadn't seen the dog looked absolutely aghast. 
Yeah, I suppose there's an issue of consent there. Maybe we should talk about that in a later edition. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where someone says Richard Curtis's portrayal of women in his films, such as Love Actually and Bridget Jones's Diary, is, quote, stupid and wrong. <laughs> is that you, Mickey? <laughs> Listen to the regular datas on both of those and you'll find we wholeheartedly agree with, let me just remember uh. who said it this time, Richard Curtis. Oh, Ooh. yeah. It seems past celluloid wrongs have finally caught up with Curtis himself who admitted in an interview with his daughter Scarlett at the Cheltenham Literature Festival that he'd got it a bit cockeyed in the past. Did he say the word sexist about his depiction of women? No. Will I? Absolutely. Shit. Admitting he regretted many of his earlier works with all-white, straight characters, Curtis said, Yes, I wish I'd been ahead of the curve, because I came from a very undiverse school and a bunch of university friends. I think that I've hung on, on the diversity issue, to the feeling that I wouldn't know how to write those parts. I think I was just sort of stupid and wrong about that. So it's a weird apology, isn't it? It's a weird apology, have it? Yeah. Yeah, I was waiting for the apology and it didn't actually arrive. No, yeah. It's kind of like, oh, I haven't met any women. I don't know. Anyway, Curtis has also previously admitted the lack of diversity in Love Actually made him feel uncomfortable and a bit stupid during a one-hour special on US network ABC broadcast on the film's 20th anniversary last year. There is such extraordinary love that goes on every minute in so many ways, all the way around the world, and makes me wish my film was better, he added. Well, <laughs> you and me, quite. You and me both, mate. <laughs> <laughs> now, given we're approaching the time of year where I despair as smart, funny, feminist women coo and moon over that pile of sexist drivel, no, oh, it's love actually time up, look, stop it, no, it hates women, I would like to ask Hannah... How would you make Love Actually better? Kill it with fire. I think that's fair. I'd also like to add that I really admire his commitment in making things that he's involved with more diverse by choosing to be interviewed by Chex Notes, his daughter. (laughs) I am Hazel Davis and I'm here with Flick Everett, who's author of a new book, Murder in the Blitz, and soon to be author of two more in the series. Women of a certain age might know her better as company's regular agony aunt and a regular fixture on radio and TV as a sexpert and relationship expert. Is that right, Flick? Well, it's a long time since my sexpert days. I don't talk about that because I was young and I needed the money. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) I've been a journalist for a very long time and I've done many, many things. (laughs) And now you're an author. So this is this is not exactly your first foray into fiction, is it? But these are these are your first kind of big book fiction books. So tell us about your journey yes, here. That's exactly right. Well, I've written quite a lot of non-fiction books. I've written about being a grandmother. I've written about not drinking. Uh, lots of books about all kinds of things. Sex and relationships, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But in about 2012, I self-published a novel that was very sort of noughties. It was all about angst-ridden 30-somethings <laughs> living in South Manchester. And I'm slightly embarrassed about it now. <laughs> but at the time, it seemed sort of relevant and it was the kind Kind of thing all my friends were reading and I thought oh I'll have a go at writing a novel but it's taken me this long really to get to the point where I really understood what I wanted to write and mm. to get a publishing deal to 
to actually write them in my cozy crime mystery series. So tell us what cozy crime is then. This is kind of like the thing that everybody's talking about at the moment and you're part of this kind of gaggle of um, cozy crime writers with Richard Osman and people like that. So what is cozy crime? Tell me tell me what it is. Yeah, and well, it's nice because it, it sounds as if, you know, Richard Osman and I and a bunch of other people <laughs> are all sitting around in the library discussing murder methods and I've never <laughs> met the man and I'm sure he's very nice. But yes, cozy crime does seem to be having a moment. I think it tends to pop up when the world is a difficult place particularly and a lot of people are struggling at the moment i think you know the golden age of cozy crime was the 1930s which as historians will know was also a difficult time so it's quite interesting that it's so popular i think people want escapism particularly at the moment without too much gritty reality intruding Mm. i think what's nice about cozy crime is there are certain unspoken rules so with gritty crime you can have a body you can have forensics pathology sort of viscera on slabs you know all the sort of unpleasantness that goes with actual murder and police investigations and all of that cozy crime tends to be a nod at least back to the golden age where difficult unpleasantness wasn't mentioned you know you can have a body lying in the churchyard but you don't find out how the blowflies attacked it and so on you know whereas (laughs) you might get a bit of that with gritty crime cozy crime also usually has a lead character who's some kind of amateur you know Mm. it's very different from police procedural or classic detective novels because cozy crime particularly does tend to involve people who are sort of bumbling a bit you know that they're like a friendly vicar or in my case they're a young reporter during the war who is very ambitious and obviously in a sex is time she's struggling to get ahead and she ends up being dragged into crimes and murders and so on so i think having an amateur gives readers somebody to root for mm. you know it's it's not quite the same feeling as oh i can put all my trust in this person and they know what they're doing it's a little bit more would i do this is mm. she doing it how i do it you know there's also quite interesting rules um, that i found out actually when i when i first pitched this book where you can't hurt an animal uh you cannot have an animal harmed or killed in cozy crime because readers hate it and you also can't obviously do anything bad to children there's no sex crimes in cozy crime either it's very much about murder and how the murder is solved through a series of clues but within those parameters you can have quite a lot of scope you know you can set it anywhere you can have murders in hawaii in the future you can have uh, murders in manchester in the 40s as i have done done. so (laughs) it's not that you can't explore the genre you just have to abide by certain factors to make it a cozy book <laughs> excellent well with that in mind this is a kind of love letter to manchester as well isn't it which is where you you were born were you born in manchester raised in manchester it's your it's your place isn't it yes so all of those things yes i was i was born in withington hospital uh, in the maternity unit there which is now closed down and i grew up in south manchester and i lived in sale near manchester for a very long time and it's only uh, in my mid-40s that i moved to scotland but i still spend a lot of time back here in manchester where i am at the moment and i absolutely love it i think it's a wonderful city and you know it shaped me in so many different ways culturally and socially and all of those things And I did want to pay tribute to it because I think so many books, particularly books set in the past, tends to be based around London um, with British writers. Because obviously a lot of people are from London and a lot of people know London. And I I love London. I think it's an absolutely wonderful city. But I also think that sometimes cities that aren't London get a bit of a raw deal in fiction. You know, we don't get much there. Mm. And I wanted to just write about my own city, which I know so well. 
uh, and what actually happened to it during the war um, because I found out a lot of things that I didn't know had happened to to the city and it was fascinating to me to be kind of delving about finding out what buildings used to be where and what restaurants people used to go to and all the rest of it because I think with London there's so much storied history there's so many books about the history of London but Manchester hasn't got so many so you have to put in a bit more digging to find out how it was and what it was like for people during the war. Oh, fab. And, and tell us a bit more about Edie York then, your your amateur sleuth. So she's a newspaper reporter in Manchester, she which is, you were. She's young. Yeah, she's 24. She grew up in an orphanage. Uh, she was left in the laundry basket on the steps as a baby. <laughs> and her big comfort in life growing up was crime novels, you know, golden age crime novels mm-hmm. that would have been published as contemporary literature when she was growing up. And so it's 1940 when the book opens and she's about 24 and she's working on the Manchester Chronicle as a sort of junior secretary, dog's body, phone answerer, note taker. But what she really wants, because of all her reading, is to be a crime reporter. Um, And she's hoping that because all the men have gone off to war, you know, and the office is sort of staffed with ragtag retirees who've just come out of their their (laughs) beekeeping retirement sort of thing to staff the paper, that she might get her chance. She doesn't get promoted to crime reporter, but she does get promoted to obituarist, which obviously opens up a whole new world of deaths that mm. she might be able to investigate should they be suspicious, which interestingly enough, one is. <laughs> <laughs> and she meets uh, she meets some new friends. She meets a detective inspector called Lou, who's very irritable but handsome, <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. To be handsome. <laughs> and they have a bit of a spark between them, but they also find each other profoundly irritating. <laughs> Sounds great. So uh, was there a bit of pressure? How much pressure was there to make Edie a feminist character on, and to sort of write her in a feminist way? Did you grapple with any kind of issues around That's that? such an interesting question. And I love that you asked that because I think a lot of people get used to having characters from the past presented with contemporary attitudes. Mm. So I remember once watching Downton Abbey and I think Lady Mary said, oh, Lady Edith is so feisty. And I thought, <laughs> oh, God, they did not have feistiness in that era for goodness sake and I think it's a very very fine line to tread because on the one hand you've got to be respectful of the era you know Mm -hmm. this is set in 1940 it's not post women's lib you know Mm -hmm. it's not anything about fighting for your rights it wasn't even thought of in those days really women were lucky to be in the workplace in the 1940s Mm. and they only were because the war had happened and all the men had gone to fight you know women were expected to do their bit so it's the very very beginning of a sort of nascent feminism in society really where women were beginning to show that they could be the equals of men in the workplace Mm. you know Um, So I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about what it was like being a young woman with a lot of ambition, not particularly interested in settling down and having children because she loves the newspaper world. She loves her job. And it's quite interesting. She's going to go on a bit of a journey. But obviously, you have to remain realistic. There was a great deal of sexism. She would not have been expected ever to be the chief crime reporter. You know, so Mm. she's battling a lot of forces. Um, You know, she accepts some of the strictures of the era she grew up in because it's like a frog in hot water you don't always realize how sexist something is when it's all you've ever known but at the same time she's slightly kicking against the pricks and slightly trying to make a better life for herself 
through having a career which was quite, to use a Lady Edith word, quite feisty in those <laughs> days, quite unusual, I would say. And it's quite interesting that you've written this character, these this series of books now. How different do you think these stories and this character would be had you written her in your 20s? Oh, I think it's really good to write novels when you're older because it gives you so much more perspective. You know, you've had so much more experience. I'm not dissing 20-something writers. Some of them write fantastic books. But for me... I think because this book is very character-led, you know, some crime books are very plot, 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 and mine is very plot arising from character. It's important to have spent a long time knowing people, being with people, finding all kinds of different people in different situations, and I think a lot of that has fed into the book. So, yeah, it's probably, I would say it's a wiser book, maybe. I don't want to blow my trumpet, it's not that wise. <laughs> it's wiser than it would have been in my 20s, put it that way. I think it would have been a bit more basic and more of a love story in my 20s, I think now okay. I can write maybe a bit more nuance because I understand how complicated things can be. Oh, interesting. And you've got two more, you've got a three-book deal for this. You've written the second one, is that right, now? Yes, I have written the second one, which I loved writing, actually, because it was a bit easier because I knew all the characters. Mm. You know, they're in a new situation with different people coming in, but my core group of characters remains the same, and it's really nice to be able to expand on them and think, right, what would they do in this situation? Because I feel like I know them as if they're my own friends. It's (laughs) it's a bit pathetic, really. I sort of feel when I finish a book about them, I feel a bit like, oh, my friends have all left town and I don't know what I'm going to do. (laughs) (laughs) And have you, I've got to ask this, have you kind of cast it? Because obviously it it lends itself so well to kind of televise, what's the word, televisation? That would be the dream. Have you cast it in your head secretly? I have. Funnily enough, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, funnily, a couple of friends of mine, I was away with them over the weekend on the beautiful Isle of Mull. And we were talking about the books that's just come out. And they said exactly that. Have you cast it? You know, who's in the TV adaptation? And I said, well, Edie will be played by Daisy Edgar-Jones, who oh, was in Normal People yeah, and was brilliant as Marianne. Because that's, she's got the right sort of looks. It's how I imagine Edie, um, <laughs> but quite sort of feisty. <laughs> And Lou, the handsome detective inspector, I saw, I'm trying to think of an actor who's a bit like Rupert Friend, but a few years younger, because Lou's about 30 in the book, so I think Rupert Friend might be getting a bit too old to play him. But having said that, he'd be the right sort. Mm, (laughs) That's who's in my head. And of course, there's a a sort of very pedantic newspaper editor called Mr. Gorringe, who I loved writing, because he's a stickler for grammar and very old school, and he's adorable. Mm -hmm. And I would like Anton Lesser to play. Okay, who I think is a wonderful actor. He was uh, Reginald Bright in Endeavour, and I just loved watching him. He's such a great actor. Yes, they would they would be my ideal characters. We'll have to wait and see in a year's time see see how that pans out. And so you're and so you're on the third book now, writing the third book now, or not quite yet. I am. I am. Yes. I'm enjoying that one too. I'm about a quarter of the way in and it's so far, so far it's going quite well. You know, I just, I I remember I gave a book, uh, The Murder and the Blitz came as a paperback a few weeks ago and I gave a copy to my father-in-law who lives down the road and he read it in a couple of days and he said to me, oh, it's wonderful. I was so gripped. I loved it. And he said, how do you think of these things? Do you just make them up? (laughs) I said, yes, I do. I just make them up. Uh, So I spend a lot of time gazing out of the window and making things up I mean obviously there's a lot of research as well but mostly the plot is made up and that's what I most (laughs) enjoy is just inventing scenarios that my characters can be in
that's quite different from your career as a journalist. Well, uh, uh, presumably, <laughs> because it's, it's a quite it's a different discipline. It's a different mindset. It's everything, isn't it? Is is this yeah. kind of the new you, or can you balance the both the both of those things quite easily? Well, in a dream world, I would like to just write novels because I've been a journalist for thirty years, and it's been wonderful. But as you know, I'm sure the profession is changing, mm-hmm. and it's getting more difficult as a freelance. And I do just love writing fiction. It makes me very happy. I mean, I've written short stories on and off for years and years. And as I say, I wrote another novel and I wrote another novel in lockdown, actually, a psychological thriller, but I haven't really done anything with that. But I think it's what I'm most drawn to now. And what I love to do is just to make things up and do research and invent characters and put them in interesting situations and see how they get out of them, because I just find it fascinating and so, so enjoyable. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you very much. And where can we find you? Are you on so you're on social media on whatever the new Twitter I is called? I am on social on media, X. yeah. I've got a Facebook page and my author page is FL Everett and on Twitter I am just Flick Everett. And Fantastic. you can find me there ranting about things. <laughs> and the book's available everywhere. Everywhere it you can is, buy books. It is. It's uh, available on Amazon, obviously, and you can get it in paperback and audio as well. The audio is great because she does a lovely Manchester accent. I really enjoyed listening to it. Did so, you choose? Did you have any say in who narrated the book? Yeah, they sent me a clip of the actors that they had in mind, and I said, "Oh yes, you know, oh, I oh. think she's excellent. Uh, she's called Zoe Mills, and she's a very, very good actor, and I think she's done a brilliant job." Oh, fab. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Flick. It was really lovely to talk to you about your book and um, look forward to finishing it, in fact. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Rebecca Acheng, a Julie Bushel, former British swimming champion and host of the Physical Capital podcast. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. So first of all, can you tell us about the podcast, please? So this is the second series of the podcast, which is called Physical Capital, and it explores human physical capital and how we use it. So largely our bodies, but there's a whole host of other things that come into that, and it's all about sports. First series is about boxing, and this series, given my background, is about swimming. So it's eight parts, and we explore the human relationship with swimming and water in many, many different ways. First, looking at the kind of historical and the academic, right the way through to swimming and sport, wild and open water swimming. And we ask the question, why do we swim? So, I mean, you were a swimmer, you know, at, at elite level. So why why did you swim? What got you into it? And also, I guess you know, why did you retire? Because you were at one point the world number one, right? And you retired from swimming age 17, just a year before the 2012 Olympics. So could could you tell us a little bit about your career in swimming? I'm half British, half Kenyan, and I grew up in Nairobi. And I learned to swim in the Indian Ocean when I was about four years old. And I was really scared of the water at first, which is kind of hilarious given how things turned out but then I did my first competition at age six the 25 meters competition and I just fell in love with the water it was easier than walking I just loved I loved being in my kind of underwater world and I I don't know I think I like the solitude of it as well and one thing kind of led to another I think I was a really competitive and kind of ambitious child anyway 
And I love sport. I love moving my body in all ways, but something about swimming just kind of stuck. And then like all sports, I think it just got more and more serious. And so, you know, each year the ante kind of upped. It was more training. It was earlier mornings. It was longer sessions. It was more competition. And the more I won, I think the more I just kind of got sucked into this world. And then when my parents were moving back to Kenya, there was this question of, which is something we explore in physical capital, you know, resources, access, you know, what the coaches were like and what opportunity I would have if I went back. And so that at that point, I came to the UK. And yeah, from there, I guess it was just, it was kind of history. I was just, I was in, I was in the sport and it, it all happens very, very quickly, I think. You think about one day to the next and kind yeah. of getting through the training sessions, but it was quite a short journey from, you know, splashing around in Kenya to being British champion. Really, it all happened in a matter of a couple of years. So you talk on the podcast quite a lot about your ethnicity. Uh, you were the first black woman to swim for Team GB, which is obviously, you know, kind of like incredible, really, when you think about it. That's that's so recent. Even more recent is Alice Deering becoming the first black woman to swim for Team GB at an Olympic. You talked to her on the podcast about that. That first accolade became quite a burden, right? Yeah, it definitely did. And I, you know, I kind of didn't answer your second question, which I think this speaks to a lot is, you know, what took me out of the sport. And I think that Alice and I explore this a little bit in the podcast, but the parallels of our experience, both being kind of 15, 16, young girls and being on this track that is hyper visible for reasons beyond just your ability in the pool. And I think that was particularly complicated for me. I think Alice was a little bit older when it happened for her. And so you have some more tools and kind of more emotional recourse to deal with the attention and the exposure that it brings. But also 10, 12 years ago, when I was in that position, we didn't have the language that we do now to talk about race. It was kind of pre-BLM and, you know, it was pre-diversity, equity and inclusion. Mm. And so I think there was a kind of fascination and I think it did, you know, I was swimming against myths and narratives around black bodies in the pool, you know, our bones are heavier and we, you know, we don't swim as a race or as an ethnicity. And I guess that meant that every time I got behind the block, it felt like not only did I have to swim a good race, I also had to prove people wrong. And I also had to, you know, represent and be a role model mm. and I think at 15 it wasn't really what I'd signed up for you know and I think at that point as well I you know I just wanted to fit in I didn't want to be singled out for being different and so it's really difficult for young women to survive in the sport especially swimming when you peak so early and there's mm. a huge amount of attention on you at a really young age when you're still a child but then you kind of lay a race on top of that and there aren't that many black swimmers and it is it is a predominantly white sport so I think it yeah for both Alice and myself in different ways it's been very complicated so my daughter is mixed she's a dual ethnicity and her dad takes her swimming she's three years old she goes like twice a week and it's a thing that he's really hot on and he's just like no because and these are his words not mine he's like black people don't swim it's really important that I get her to like learn swimming so he's really kind of on it I love that. You know, I have heard that said quite a lot. And, it, you know, it's one of the things you talk about on the podcast. And I know that one of the things that came up quite recently, just before the last Olympics, was there was a bit of a furore 
about a swimming cap, which I think Alice actually did some work with called Soul Cap, which uh, Fina said it couldn't be like official Olympic kits. And then that was Mm -hmm. obviously changed because it's ridiculous. This is something that obviously as a white person with European hair, whatever, like would never have occurred to me in a million years because it's just not something I've ever had to think about. But it does strike me that that could be a huge barrier, right? I wondered if there were other kind of barriers to swimming that maybe other people might not have thought about. I think the disproportionate um, impact that drownings or swimming incidents have on the black and brown community kind of can't be overstated. You know, swimming as a sport is one of the only sports that can save your life. And there are a lot of people who look like me uh, and who look like your daughter who don't have that access to swimming facilities, who aren't encouraged culturally to go down to the pool, who maybe can't afford to get into swimming. And so I think there's there's all of that kind of socio-political economic stuff going on, which we do explore actually in, in some episodes of the podcast. But I do think the cultural piece is really important as well. I never got my hair braided when I was swimming because it was too big and it was too heavy under my swimming cap. And obviously these new caps are kind of created to accommodate that. But I think a neat sport really sees itself as quite a purist environment. And so doing anything to kind of change the lines that are drawn around it is, you know, somehow seen as impossible. But it's, I mean, it's exactly as the kind of soul cap thing showed. It's not impossible to create space to include the full spectrum of human difference because these things are often tiny like a small tweak around a swimming cat is not that big a deal i think everywhere you look especially as a young brown girl who wants to go down to the pool the issue of hair if you're from maybe the Sikh community and you have hair on your arms or you know your legs and you know there, there are just lots of signs that are kind of saying like this isn't for you basically and so i think that it's really about how, how we break that down you know, and how we really encourage people to actually go to the pool. And I think that starts with these kinds of signals, like the swimming hat, for example, or like Nike bringing out the kind of burkini, the the full body, full costume. These are things that I think will encourage people to see themselves in the water. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the experience of being coached at an elite level at a young age. This is something that like, I think increasingly people are talking about because I feel like we're having a bit of a day of reckoning almost about some of the coaching practices that were or have been employed and how they kind of impact. So I just wrote a book recently about my swimming experience which comes out next year. One of the things I explore a lot in that is that coach swimmer relationship and I think that one of the things we explore a lot in episode two of the podcast Mm. is about that kind of commitment and what it looks like to commit to a practice that is 50 weeks of the year, Mm -hmm. twice a day, you know, 35 hours a week. Um, So not only does it kind of shred your body into a million pieces, I still wake up with like phantom pains in my hips. Oh, wow. All of my arches and my feet are collapsed and you know so I mean you're really putting your body under this immense amount of pressure I mean people say that swimming is a weightless activity but doing the same movement every single day for four hours will really take its toll on the body but then you have this person encouraging you to always go beyond what you think the limit is and you eventually learn I think to be comfortable in discomfort and you start to like it a little bit 
And so I think it's an environment that is almost like an army environment, um, like a very institutional space where, you know, if you step back and you have a look at coaching practices, a lot of people, especially not elite sports people, would say, my God, that's effing barbaric. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it becomes really normal really quickly. And so definitely psychological tools are used to create that feeling of normalcy, right? You're kind of pitched against each other in some ways or, you know, your coach will pay favorites or, you know, there are there are all of these ways that you're encouraged to forget the outside world, right? And just kind of fully buy into this process with this dream at the end, which is, you know, an Olympic podium or an Olympic final or an Olympic gold medal, the World Cup if you're a footballer. I think you're discouraged from thinking beyond that moment, right? You're not encouraged from thinking beyond the end of the season, let alone what happens after sport and when when it's all over. And I think that's a responsibility that, you know, coaches and all, all, all sporting institutions really have. Very few people make it. What happens if you don't? Mm. And what have you given up to get there? And then what do you have after that, I suppose, if, you, if you've given up all of that stuff? I often think this about, like, really young people on the X Factor. I know this is a weird comparison right? to make. No, no, but, like, you're being told, like, these kids are, like, 15, 16 or whatever, and they're being told, that's it, you're not good enough. And it's just, like, the end of their world, you know? Like, where do you go from that? No, I, I completely, I completely agree. I think it's... I always remember saying, since after I go into Oxford, I remember people asking, you know, I was asking about, like, what did you get in your exam results? Yeah. I remember telling people, like, what I got in my GCSEs. My GCSEs were they, were, they were fine, but they weren't very good. And they weren't very good because, you know, I'd been told that I was going to be Olympic champion. And so I didn't need to get a physics GCSE because I was going to be a big star. I mean, I was, I was smart and I studied hard at school and my parents wouldn't have taken that at all. You know, they were like, absolutely not really education focused and I was so fortunate for that but one of the things and I, I always come back to the statistics that the biggest employer of ex-Olympians in America is Home Depot well and when it's over at whatever point whether that's 15 to 16 or whether that's at the end of a great career very few people get to turn this especially swimming into a career beyond the pool and so a lot of the times you go back to the place that you were born with no tertiary education and that's it. You know, there's no more support and you're outside the kind of walls of the institution and you're kind of left, I guess, alone to figure out what to do next. And this identity that you embodied for so long doesn't really exist anymore. And I think that that's one of the parts of a meat sport, especially swimming when it's such a huge time commitment. It really takes your whole life that isn't often addressed or kind of looked at. And oftentimes you're really young when it happens as well. You know, I was 17 and I I think I was terrified that the best thing I'd ever done in my life already happened, which I think is is really insane. And, you know, it's something that, yeah, all all sporting institutions could do do more to kind of support athletes in that way. I remember meeting someone who, I actually couldn't name her if I wanted to, but I wouldn't name her anyway because this is like a private conversation that, that yeah. we had. So I, I obviously don't have her permission to speak on it. But she'd won an Olympic medal, right? And I, uh, you know, I was just like, I mean, this is amazing. This is the best thing ever. I can't believe, you know, like to have an Olympic medal. Because I think there is currency in, a, in an Olympic medal 
that everyone can value right yeah like so i was just like this is the most incredible thing blah 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 and she was just like you know it's been absolutely shit actually like this has happened that's happened i don't have a pension i don't have this and she's just like if i have my time again i wouldn't i wouldn't bother and i was just like that is the saddest thing i ever heard i i've certainly thought about this when i wrote my book about about football do you think that sport is exploitative i think that sport definitely can be exploitative but I also think that it takes buy-in that happens by every single stakeholder. And that is the athlete as well. You buy into this dream and you're not putting your body through that if you don't want it so badly. And so, yes, it's really hard to understand why people do that to themselves. However, when you watch the Olympics, when anybody watches the Olympics, like it touches you on a level... Yeah. You know, I mean, and swimming, especially, it's not a big commercial sport. Like, it's not the NFL. It's not, you know, you're not making any money. But it's incredible to watch people do that with their bodies. It's incredible to see the upsets, to see the underdog, you know, to see people live out this dream and to understand what was behind that. Even if you can only understand just a a tiny bit of what that person must have put in to get to that moment. I think the exploitation probably comes when people are discouraged from looking critically at what they're doing and i think that that happens more often Mm. than not is that people get to these junctures like i did and oftentimes they're not supported to kind of critically analyze is this really the path that i want to go down what am i giving up you know to me the olympics coincided with my a-level year and it would have meant you know basically dropping out of school Obviously, there was a plan to kind of go back and finish, but I don't know if I ever would have. Mm. And I don't know what that would have meant for me in the long term. And so whilst I was supported by my parents and by one of my coaches to make my way out of the sport with some dignity, I think that a lot of people aren't. And that's something that I think we should question and interrogate a little bit more. So you've already mentioned that you've written a book, These Heavy Black Bones, which I know is out in spring next year. Can you tell us a little bit about the book, about what we can sort of expect to expect to read in it? So the book is about my relationship with the water, much like the podcast is about the human relationship with the water. And it's kind of 17 years of my life. The first part of the book is about how I got in the pool and why I got in the pool and what it felt like. A lot of it explores kind of memory. It's very sensory. I write my experience of being in communion with this kind of liquid world and you're meant to kind of swim with me and and you're meant to be inside my body. Like it's very visceral. And I wanted the writing to kind of evoke that for it to feel literary as well as being this interrogation of the sport that I did for 10 years. And the book's written in two parts. And the first part kind of tracks the ascent. And then the second part kind of tracks my my journey out of the sport and the why. And a lot of interrogation, media and press and the kind of narratives that were created around my success. But also an interrogation, I guess. So why do we push our bodies that hard? What is it all for? And yeah, what life is there kind of after this perfect experience that feels, you know, almost timeless and never repeatable? I guess the the book is also an offering of freedom to myself. I kind of didn't talk about this for 10 years. And actually doing this podcast was another really kind of challenging thing where I had to question, you know, why haven't I kind of been more involved in 
narratives around the sport and why haven't I wanted to talk about my own experience for a long time and I think I think I thought I needed to have all the answers as to why black people don't swim right and that that's the title of the book as well these heavy black bones it speaks with the myth that you know black people's bones are heavier and I guess my story pushes against that narrative and so with the book much like with the podcast it was yeah it was more about an exploration of the kind of nuance that sounds great I, c- I can't wait to read it I'll be tough okay good for, for thank a you <laughs> I assume we can listen to Physical Capital wherever you get your podcasts from. And is the book available to pre-order? The book is going to be available to pre-order in a matter of, I think, months, not even months now. So very, very soon. So please keep a lookout for that. But yes, Physical Capital drops every Wednesday. It has a beautiful, beautiful soundscape as well as being really, really interesting um, and informative. I learned a lot actually through making it as well, which was really fantastic and i think especially post-covid when people got into kind of wild swimming and people really really like to you know have that kind of cold water full body submersion i think that we appreciate our relationship with water so much more in the last couple of years and the podcast is yeah definitely an invitation to delve deeper rebecca where can we follow you on social media do do you do twitter or x or whatever we're calling it now or, or instagram I have an agnostic relationship with Twitter slash X, but I do do Instagram um, and I tweet very occasionally. I'm Rajulu Bushel, so R-A, Rajulu Bushel. That's my handle everywhere. And today, my social media team at work forced me onto TikTok. Wow. And I was like, how does it work? And what do you do with it? So anyway, you can, (laughs) yeah, you can follow along and I will announce book and also all of the episodes of the podcast as well and next week as it is black history month now the episode on blackness and swimming is dropping which is fantastic and i speak to a lot of my heroes and it's a brilliant brilliant episode so don't miss it rebecca thank you so much for joining me thank you this was great feel the rhythm feel the rhyme get on up it's rated or dated time. Jen, <laughs> what did we watch? <laughs> this week we watched 1993's Cool Runnings, inspired by the real-life story of the first ever Jamaican bobsleigh team. Now, I've looked up the difference between bobsled and bobsleigh. The former is how they refer to it throughout. The latter is how I would say it. Bobsleigh is the official name of the Olympic sport. Bobsled is what they say in North America. Okay, interesting. Right. So I will be saying Bob Slay. Thank you very much. Okay. Even though they call it Bob Sled. Yes. Even okay. though they call it Bob Sled, because they're wrong and the Olympics I'm not are right. around for this bollocks. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Just gonna mention as well the fear in your eyes when I started that intro. Is she gonna do the accent? No, oh, of course I'm not yeah. gonna do the accent. You both look absolutely terrified. <laughs> and nor should they have done anyway. More on that in a minute. Uh, <laughs> I can't vouch for what they call this in Jamaica, and I'm not sure that this film can either. But again, more on that later. So, okay. directed by John Turtletaub, it was written by Lynn Seifert, Tommy Swerdlow, and Michael Goldberg. I can't lie to you, the filmographies of all of the above are not what I would call standout. The big draw here is, of course, the feel-good factor of a great sporting tale of triumph over adversity, and John Candy, 
Yeah. Man, I love John Candy. Oh, he's so good in this. And it was the last of Candy's films to be released before his death from a heart attack in 1994, age 43. I can't believe he was that young. 43 is so young. It's yeah. awful, isn't yeah. it? I, I can't believe that. I felt like he was, I mean, he was a lot older than me. I was a child, but um, yeah, He's 43 like Chris Bauer, is... though. It felt like he was always around sort of 40, right, John Candy? Even when he yeah. was really young in films yeah. or was really young, it's that Stephen Fryer's Melchit thing where you're just like, this is an older man. And he wasn't. He was still really young. Anyway, um, Wagons East and Canadian Bacon were the last two films of his that were released, but they were released posthumously. It was originally supposed to be a sports drama, and Jeremiah S. Chechich was first on board to direct before dropping out to direct Benny and June instead. And English director Brian Gibson was also in the frame, but he declined the job to take on What's Love Got to Do With It. So what I'm saying is this could have been a very different film. (laughs) Very different. Let's have a look at the plot. The film charts the fortunes of fictional characters or fictional character Doris Bannock, played by Leon Robinson, or just Leon, as he's credited in this, who instantly, if you're thinking, where have I seen this man before? Yes, you have seen him in the Like a Prayer video which I feel like I should have known ages ago, but I didn't. Was Did he, you know the, that? for some people, controversial black Jesus? Yes. Even uh, though, you know, Jesus was born in the Middle East, so, you know, probably not the white blonde-haired guy that the Catholics don't love. I'm not hanging around for this. <laughs> that was actually aimed at you directly, Hannah. <laughs> Anyway, Doris is a Jamaican sprinter who hopes to qualify for the 1988 Olympics. Disaster strikes when Junior Bevel, played by Rule D. Lewis, falls during the race, tripping Doris and Yul Brenner, played by Malik Yoba. While imploring Team Jamaica's main man, I'm guessing he's like the head of the Olympic organising committee in Jamaica, he's asking them if they can race again. And this is the first major plot hole for me, if I'm honest. (laughs) He says no. Doris then notices a picture of his dad, an Olympic sprinter and gold medalist himself, standing alongside American bobsleigh champion Irving Blitzer. That's the second plot hole for me. And he thinks, might as well have a crack at that. Doris enlists the help of Blitzer, who happens to live on the island now to coach them. But Blitzer is now persona non gratis in the sporting world, having cheated in the 1972 Winter Olympics by putting weights in his bobsleigh to make it go faster. Does it work like that? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I guess if you put like weights in something that's moving downhill, yeah, it'll make well, it go faster. I don't know. Cause Although presumably it will make you go push. slower at the start. Yeah. Yeah. It'll make you heavier, so it might make you slower. So I don't know. I'm just saying. Do you think they disqualified him for being stupid? Maybe. <laughs> I just think that that sounds... I'm not sure it's completely plausible. But anyway. Maybe it's like when the snowboarders get caught smoking pot. Maybe it's a thing of, I don't know, would that make you better or worse than snowboarding? <laughs> I can never work that out that. either. I don't think cocaine's going to make you better at football, but okay, fine. <laughs> you also enlist fellow thwarted sprinters, senselessly angry young man Brenner and junior, plus his mate Sanka, who's a pushcart derby champion and insufferable bellend to uh, complete the team. Oh, I think that's a bit harsh, Jen. Maybe we'll come back yeah, to that. I think we will come back to that. I agree. Against all hope and expectation and a lot of lulls because, did you know Jamaica's quite hot? The team make it to Calgary to qualify for a very heavily sponsored by Adidas Winter Olympics, which they <laughs> somehow managed to qualify for despite having A, trained for four minutes, B, having a sleigh made out of a couple of rusty tin cans tied together with string, 
and C, everyone laughing at them because, did we mention Jamaica's quite hot? It's all going terribly well until it isn't, they crash, but leave us heroes because didn't they do well going somewhere very cold? That is the most cynical plot summary I think we've ever had. (laughs) There are a few differences between the film and the real life history of the first ever Jamaican bobsleigh team. No shit. Yeah, I know. Quite quite a few. How much of this is true? One percent. One percent is what what the guy said. So they really did compete in the 1988 Winter Olympics. But basically, after someone from the American embassy, George Fitch, suggested that there might be some talent in the sport, having watched the annual pushcart derby, Fitch put up his own cash to fund the team and basically found a bunch of guys from the military to form the team, plus a former American bobsleigh athlete to coach. They really were disqualified by the IOC shortly before the Olympics, but various people, including Prince Albert I'd of Monaco, because <laughs> he was competing as well, apparently, which I yeah. didn't know, convinced them to let them have a go. And initially, they were just going to compete in the two-person event, represented by Michael White and Dudley Stokes, but decided to compete in the four-man event a few days later after finishing 30th, but they didn't have a four-man bobsleigh, so they raised the money by selling T-shirts, apparently. And then they bought one off the Canadian team, who obviously had a few go and spare. I feel like 1% is a very low reality check then, because it feels like there was quite a bit of that that was brought in. I'd say about 30% by by the sounds of that story. Is anyway, it? so they did crash and they did carry the sleigh over the finish line. But no one really gave a shit about it. And uh, Fitch told the told ESPN in a later interview that, as you said, Mickey, about 1% of the film was historically accurate. But look, aren't we glad that they did make up this account of the 1988 <laughs> Olympics and the Jamaican bobsleigh team? The film received mostly positive reviews and has an approval rating of 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. It also made $154.9 million at the box office from a budget of $17 million. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's all right, Mick. I know that you own this film on DVD. So, Hannah, I'll ask you, had you seen this one before? I hadn't, no. Had you never seen really? Collins, Hannah? No. Oh, wow. What year did it come out? 1993. Yeah, I was at university. I didn't go to the cinema often when I was at university. And I suppose it was something that I probably always meant to watch. And no offence, but most of the people who recommended that I watch it were people who had made very bad recommendations in the past to me. So I'd never taken anyone up on it. I'm not offended. People just need to listen to our flicking to see (laughs) that there is a difference in our films of choice. It is basically a kid's film as well. Like it is like pitch. It feels personal now. <laughs> but so, like, what I'm saying is I can understand why Hannah wouldn't necessarily have gone to see it while she was at university. So, Mick, can I ask you, why did you love it so? Just really warm and cheering. And I actually think it's an incredible performance from John Candy. Because I love his wild, full-on John Candy turned up to 11. Absolutely adore it. But this is really understated, and I think it works really well. But, I mean... It's the the tale of the underdog done good, and it, it's funny, less funny to me now as a grown-up. But, yeah, what, what's not to like about it? Guys? <laughs> when I said it was recommended to me by people whose choice I didn't necessarily respect, I didn't think it was terrible. I didn't think it was terrible. It wasn't what fully what I was expecting. I was a little bit annoyed that it either didn't completely sever from history or stick more closely to history. I think one or the other might have been a bit 
better. And I will say that for what you were saying about, you know, they live somewhere hot and, you know, they're going somewhere cold. What I will say is I lived in a ski resort in Australia for three months and every so often people would pull up in a car and they'd come from Brisbane or Darwin or something (laughs) and they would lose their fucking shit. They'd never seen snow before. They, They didn't know how to walk in it or they'd lie down in it or they'd throw it at each other. Everybody became a child around it. So I do think there is an element of lack of understanding if you live in a place where you see snow and you see really hot that other people only live at those two extremes i think it's an absolutely fair point jamaica is hot so why would they necessarily think about having a bobsleigh team in the olympics for the same reasons that we're shit at the winter olympics because we don't have the climate for it it's it's the same thing but i do think that this film really does oh they kiss that egg yeah, yeah exactly they 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 make it quite a big deal out of it so Hannah, I wanted to ask you in particular plot holes. Did you find any plot holes? How were you with the plot holes? Talk to me. Well, I will say I wasn't very well. So, you know, I kind of let a lot of quiet coffee just wash over me in that, okay, this is happening. I mean, I'm pretty sure that actually the Olympic committee is probably like riddled with red tape. I'm pretty sure that Jamaica would have wanted its breast printers representing itself yep you know, at that event rather than the person who just happened to finish because everybody else fell over. (laughs) Oh, but Jamaica's so laid back, guys. Come on now. So laid back. Everything's iry. There were loads of things that I just thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I also think probably if you've been disqualified from racing, you're maybe not allowed to coach an Olympic team. I don't know. Mm. There was... So, Depends. but like I say, I didn't feel very well, and I love John Candy, so I was just happy to just literally lie shivering on the sofa watching, and yeah, not questioning too much. And right, he much. is great in this, though, isn't yeah, he? That yeah, is so good, and he's so understated. We get the John Candy schmaltz, like in planes, trains, and automobiles. He gets his big speech, which is joyous. But he's never OTT at all. He's just straight down the line. I love his sentimental speech in this. If you're not all right without the medal, you won't be all right with the medal. I cried at it. He gets two, doesn't he? Because he gets one to the committee and then he gets one to Doris as well. I I would like to say, I think you're wrong on Sanka. I think he's quite charming. Mm. There are some pretty strong tropes about Jamaican people in this film. And I think Sanka is quite problematic actually as a character it's like oh they're all really relaxed and chilled out and they don't stress and they just want to sing and dance and like be merry and blah 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 oh it's very lilt advert for sure yeah yeah. if you look at the fact that there's really no one jamaican involved in the making of this film like none of the actors are jamaican none of the writers are jamaican the director isn't jamaican like no one in this is jamaican so I don't think that's aged terribly well. And I think that Sanka in particular is, he's just like the figure of mirth and that's all he is. I take absolutely all of that on board, but I would say that equally, if you are going to make a film about four men, you know, you do actually have to divide them in personality yeah. type, you know, in the sense yeah. of that's how you make a film because then you get someone that everybody likes or someone that everybody identifies with. He is the clown. He's absolutely yes. the clown. Yeah. But I, yeah. I feel that's more kind of lazy screenwriting in yeah. a buddy movie rather than specifically troping it up there. But everything you've said about the making of the film and the writing of the film and no Jamaican input, I absolutely agree with. So I had yeah. a little look to see what people had said about it. 
So someone had written a piece in 2018 where I think there was going to be another Jamaican bobsleigh team in the Winter Olympics that year and everyone was doing the cool runnings like feel the rhythm, blah, blah, blah. And she had written a piece about it. A woman of her mum's Jamaican, she wrote for the Washington Post, Christiana Fryer, who's a writer and academic, said, if we look Jamaican, walk Jamaican, talk Jamaican and is Jamaican, then we sure as hell better bobsled Jamaican. It's a quote from the film. What this means, she says, apparently, is for the athletes to arrive for competition the next day dancing and singing. Jamaica, we have a bobsled team. They also adopt the feel the rhythm as their pre-start hype chant. Being Jamaican for them means stressing less, smiling more and becoming more musical and lyrical. Traits often deployed in racist tropes about black and Caribbean people in particular. And I think that he is the main thrust of the Jamaican-ness, in inverted commas, of the team. I agree with that. You did at the start call him a bellend, and I don't think he's a bellend. Then. Yeah, like, I, yeah, I agree with that. Like, the writing of him might be out of order, and I'm not going to argue with that because, you know, you and that academic have absolutely fought a case, but I don't think it makes him a bellend. I think it makes him the clown. I just think he's annoying. I don't... I, he's an annoying character. That's why I think he's a bellend. I, it's not his fault that he was written by, by someone <laughs> lazy, but he is annoying. Much as the name Yul Brenner is funny, I find his sort of seemingly aggressiveness at absolutely everything way more annoying. Uh, which is probably a self-trope about black men. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping we're going to get onto the really important topic of how the guy who plays Junior Bevel has such a flat head. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like a square. It's incredible. Is that from all the falling over when running? I don't know. I don't know what you guys will make of this, but this is his first ever acting job, apparently. <laughs> don't know if you think it shows. Did his dad get it for him? Oh, I don't know about that. Play what you know. I mean, I would say to you, because uh, obviously it's a standard issue, what about the women? But there, there just aren't any, so it's, it's not really worth it. Hey, uh... come on now, Jen. There's a girlfriend who is angry at her boyfriend kissing all the other women to make money. There's not really anyone else to talk about, is there? I think he's got a mum as well somewhere who sort of looks proud from time to time. Is that his mum? Because in the first scene, he sets up for a race and then just keeps on running after he's finished, which is hilarious. But when he's setting up to do that, that woman, who I think also is his mum, from what we see later on, but she's with another middle-aged woman and they're totally ogling him. Yeah, no, you're right. They're totally objectifying him. Maybe she's just really proud. I think she's the local barkeep. Yeah, she's she seems to run that bar, doesn't she? She does yeah. know that's my boy, though, about him. I feel like we're supposed to think she's his mum, but you're right, I'd completely forgotten that she is perving on him massively at the start. Maybe she's now, but she's certainly encouraging it from her friend to perv on her son. Who knows? just really like John Candy in it. I think he's great. He's my favourite, like, in every little bit of it. John Candy is just remarkable. I guess the other, like, if we're going to talk about racist tropes, though, we should probably talk about East Germany, who are z- the villains. Yes. Of the piece. That is true. Just everyone in this, apart from them and John Candy, are arseholes, basically. There's like no, no one nice in it. They're all horrible to them. The lead East German who, you know, at the end is clapping. He's clapping away like heroes. The, the underdogs have come through. It's very through, top gun, isn't it? That bit. <laughs> He's, they start slow clapping them. And I'm like, isn't that a bad thing? Just, that would not feel encouraging if someone started slow clapping me. In America, slow clapping is seen as like a, a good thing, whereas okay. here it's seen as a bad thing. So, yeah, that's a it's bit like confused. black hats. No one knows whether it's lucky or unlucky. But yeah, you lead East German guy. I was like, oh, I've seen him in some, being a bad guy in something else. And I was like, I couldn't remember what it was. Couldn't remember what it was. 
Anyway, for ages, I thought it was just I'd seen him being a bad guy in this film when I'd watched it before. But I rescued my sense of dignity and he's actually the one of the bad guys in Orphan Black, Hannah. Ah. Same sort of delivery, same yeah. sort of performance. Not an East German accent, I don't think. I mean, because East Germans were having the best time in 1988, weren't they? Jesus. Well, I'm reading Stasi Land at the moment, and yeah, I can confirm that no, they were not having the best time in 1988. Yeah. I mean, I think I maintain what I said before, everyone in this is an arsehole apart from from this team and John Candy. So, But you're right, I have definitely seen a few things from that, that time where East Germans are not portrayed particularly sympathetically, shall we say. No, villain of choice. I've got to say, though, you know, the last sporting movie, kind of underdog movie we watched was indeed International Velvet. And I would watch Cool Runnings till my eyes bled before I would watch <laughs> that again, if I'm <laughs> honest with you, Jen. I don't know if I agree with that. <laughs> don't make me choose. <laughs> so let's ask the question then. Cool Runnings, rated or dated? I think it's dated, but I did have a really nice time. And, you know, this chat has made me rethink some of the stuff that I probably hadn't noticed before, which is always a good thing, I think, to challenge views and to to look at things differently. Dated. No caveat. I agree. (laughs) I think it is dated. But as Mickey said, I didn't have a terrible time watching it. And my daughter, who is quarter Jamaican, danced to a lot of the music. So maybe they were right after all. Who knows? Uh, (laughs) And then after that, she uh, also reconstructed quite a lot of bobsleigh crashes with some kitten toys that Mickey had sent us over the weekend. So um, that was weird. Maybe that's her laptop, though, Jen. It's it's rather that than her shouting, (laughs) no, 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 and throwing your technology out the window. (laughs) Who's next? It's me next week, and uh, Jen isn't here, so Hannah and I are going to watch a really, really old film. <laughs> We're going to watch The Red Shoes, a little bit of Powell and Pressburger. Nice. I'm glad I don't have to watch a really, really old film. <laughs> Standard Issue for All Women.